Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedi. So, David, we get letters. We get lots and lots of letters, and some of those letters are partly or completely in all caps because somebody is mad mm-hmm. at us. Yeah. And I think that relates to a recent guest on the show who felt that maybe he wasn't treated as respectfully as he should have been. Something about the idea that we completely trashed him after we were done with the interview and he wasn't there to defend himself? I think... Something along those lines? Something along those lines. And, you know, it's not that we sit here and try to trash somebody, but it's a matter of expressing our honest opinion. If we don't think that the person has something on the ball, maybe their opinions are lacking factual information, well, we're going to say it. So this person had a problem with the fact that we let him pitch his book incessantly, his first edition, special edition, signed by him in his blood and saliva. We didn't let him promote that enough. We didn't let him state that you had to buy this book because it it would increase in value like the Leonardo da Vinci Codex. You mean that guy? I think that guy. And that guy who claimed to have a skull that before the evidence was in, must be of an alien-human hybrid right. person. You know, I, I heard something interesting from uh, one of our listeners, and in fact, it made me kind of wonder. Actually, it was uh, one of our fans, and soon probably was going to be one of our guests, Gene, a really interesting storyteller who shall remain nameless at the moment, who emailed me and told me that he listened to the episode, and he was really fascinated by the fact that uh, Mr. Pie did not find it potentially compelling that, well, maybe this creature is not a alien-human hybrid. Maybe it's a hybrid between humans and the cave people. I mean, they found the, the skeleton was in a, or I should say the skull was in a cave. So uh, this fan of ours, who's a well-known writer on things that go bump in the night in New England, he shall remain unnamed for now. He suggested that we have Mr. Pie back on and talk to him about the possibility that perhaps we're talking about a hybrid between a human and a mole person. Well, that's okay. Of course, we see the mole people on those commercials for Geico. Wait a minute, aren't those the the gecko commercials? With well, the little, they have uh, geckos, but they also have yeah. the cave people. Oh, the, yeah. the cavemen, but that's not... No, we're talking about like the, the shaver kind of, you know, deep from within the earth people. Oh, the Dero type people. Yeah. Okay. Well, why not? If they found the skull in a cave, maybe it was actually the product... Oh, forget it. I can't keep this up. You know, we gave this person an Apple opportunity to present his nonsensical theories, and, and he did. And um, I think it was very telling, Gene, that uh, in the email to us that he sent us, in all caps, I mean, he uh, you know, didn't kind of deal with the questions I had for him in our little email exchange, which we've not shared with our audience, and I don't think we'll share the major points of it, but I think it was very kind of us to not skew our audience or give them any preconceived notions, like mentioning the fact that Lloyd had uh, written a book called Everything You Know Is Wrong in bed. (laughs) Well, that's how it goes. And maybe, maybe not not in bed. That's the fortune cookie gag. I'm sorry. I I apologize for audience. Maybe I should just like take off the in bed part. That's that old Chinese fortune cookie joke that hopefully some of our audience will know. But right. I think we could certainly redact that as they say in government circles. But, the point is here is that we gave the person a fair chance to present his right. evidence, but I think he was cherry picking. I think the problem to be perfectly serious about is that he was looking for somebody to say, yes, this is really a human alien hybrid. And he was willing to overlook evidence that pointed in another direction. Now, frankly, if this was a rare deformity, 
I think that archaeologists would be interested in the anthropologists. They actually mm-hmm. might find sure. that this is really something that's mm-hmm. worth further investigation. So right. we have to look at it that way. Maybe there is something there that is worthy of analysis, even if it doesn't fit in with his pet theories. Well, I think that there's a good possibility it's going to turn out to be a somewhat well-known, albeit rare deformity. That completely aside, Gene, the bottom line is that in the email exchange, there were the signs, to me, of someone who is basically practicing pseudoscience. And I think it's important because when we talk about topics on the show, Gene, things that do stray away from the limitations of our current scientific knowledge, it's obviously critical that we have an open mind and that we be willing to entertain theories that don't fall within the realm of our current knowledge. I mean, that's what this show is all about, discussing the paranormal. And and I guess, by definition, that also means supernatural. Though I have to say, Gene, I've always had problems with that term because that places something that's not understood by us outside of nature, which clearly the fact that we observe, we seem to observe these strange, unexplained phenomenon in our day-to-day lives would it, would, to me, indicate that they're squarely part of nature just not part of nature that we understand. So, I mean, all that's fine. The problem with the star child is that I do indeed feel that Lloyd is sort of using this as a rare physical specimen to support a set of ideas that essentially have the evidence fit the theory, which um, is not really good science. But again, if we do the research into Lloyd Pye, we find out that he has a very strong disdain for much of the scientific method to the point where he presents his work under the umbrella of this idea of alternative knowledge. And by calling it knowledge, basically bestowing upon it credibility and validity without any, to my mind, any real third-party corroboration. And I just, I don't know that that is a valid way to practice any kind of theoretical approach, whether it be science or, and again, at at the risk of sounding ridiculous, pseudoscientific. Because, again, we have to sort of expand, Gene, the discussion to encompass things that perhaps are true that we don't yet understand. And Lord knows we're going to do a bunch of that tonight. (laughs) Indeed. In the second part of the show, we'll have Neil Adams. And Neil Adams is going to talk about an expanding Earth, expanding Mm -hmm. in size. And maybe the scientific community, geologists, don't accept this. But some apparently are beginning to look into the possibility. And we're also going to talk about something called the science of extraterrestrials. Are you kidding? Yes, I'm not kidding. There's what? There's science involved? Not pseudoscience? It's not the pseudoscience of extraterrestrials? Well, this guest, Eric Julian, has asked to be on the show, so we're going Mm -hmm. to question him about that and other subjects. And we don't want to be confrontational. Maybe that's the dilemma here. If you talk to a guest and you think that maybe they are, well, maybe we will be confrontational. I don't know. No, no, no. Listen, an environment where it's so hard to get any kind of rational discussion about these things. I think, in general, Gene, in political terms in the United States right now, certainly in the discussions of these topics, I think it's time that we take the gloves off. I think that we're at a point where political correctness is essentially drowning us. It's squelching any kind of rational voice. Basically, everybody's got to be sensitive to everybody else's feelings. So be it. In order to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. Okay, get ready to break the eggs. Coming up okay. next on the PowerCast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. 
We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA. And they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Eric Julian, tell me, what do you mean by the science of extraterrestrials? Well, the science of extraterrestrials is something which is, for most of the people, which is very odd, very different from our technology or science. And the point is that what I say is we have some now, we have some tools to understand what are the UFOs and how it works and uh, from where are the extraterrestrials, how they pilot their ships and so on. So uh, the, the Science of Extraterrestrial is a book that I've written after many experiences of contact with the ETs and I have learned their technology in a contact in 1990, for example. And after 2002, have had many experiences, uh, particularly in 2004, where I've been taught their science in terms of time nature. Because this is the point today. The science, the actual science of human beings is not absolutely correct, especially because we have many contradictions between quantum physics, for example, and uh, general relativity. Yeah, everybody knows this. So the science of extraterrestrial is based on the new concept of time. So the main point is that a frequency is based on a conventional time unit, you know, the second. And what we call the arrow of time is but an, an arbitrary way to consider all the phenomena. It means that the strict causality does not exist in equations which express particular causality. Just describe a particular point of view, the one of the human observer. So the science of extraterrestrial say that causality is variable. It is just a matter of point of view according to the scale 
in which the observer is to look at the observed object. Let's back up a little bit, Eric, and, and I want to understand this. Okay, so you have been in contact with these beings who are supposed to be extraterrestrial. Where did they come from? Well, from different parts of the, um, the galaxy and even the universe. The problem is that we are trying to look at uh, a physical point uh, from where they come. But in fact, there are you know, different layers in the space-time, the different planes of reality. And so they come from uh, Sirius, they come from uh, the Orion Belt, and so on. They come from everywhere. You know, it's like a, a person on Earth having uh, been inhabitant of different cities in different continents. So they have their originated planet and they have older planets where they have been. So that's why this is very difficult to say they come from here or from there because their evolution is so long in the time, in our scale of time, that it's very difficult to tell you from where they are. The I mean, don't they say to you, Eric, we are from such and such a place? Well, most of the time I've been in touch with the uh, what I call the blue beings. They are from a planet uh, called Munya. But they have visited different other planets too. So that's why I'm very, it's very difficult for me to tell you uh, from what area they are from. Okay, Eric, but, Eric well, David had a couple of questions. He wanted to get some clarifications here. So, David? Eric, I'm, I'm curious about something. You say you've been in touch with extraterrestrial beings and that they've told you they come from different places. How yeah. do you know this? How do you know they come from other planets? Well, I have got an experience in March 2004 where I have visited, I have visited them in different places where uh, they've been. And in fact, they, they made some kind of surveillance of different civilizations, including us. And, you know, be part of these civilizations is their goal, just to help people to get the new step of evolution. So that's why this is very difficult to tell you that they are just from one place in the universe and they come here just to visit us. It's not just you know, one leg. It's different legs in their journey. Right. What I guess I'm wondering about here is motive. I assume that any intelligent species does things for a reason. Certainly human beings do things for reasons that we don't necessarily always understand. If we have an intervention of some sort from an alien species, there has to be a motivation for their actions. When they tell you that they're from other planets... And uh, I guess what you're saying is that you're in touch with different species from different planets? Yes, that's true. But uh, mm -hmm. the main contacts come from uh, the blue beings. Okay, you say they're blue beings. Now, blue meaning that they have blue skin? Yes, that's right. Okay, so do they look human otherwise or what? Well, they, they look, uh, they were about five feet tall with a big head, uh, with uh, big eyes, helmet eyes, and their uh, skin is blue. They have long Form. They have are quite thin, and uh, you know they are like the greys, but their head is more round, and that's why they are very different, and they are very different with their behavior too. Okay, what I'm wondering about here, Eric, is why did Eric Julian get selected to meet these blue beings? Why did they pick you? Well, it's not. Uh, I'm not selected. I must say that uh, I have chosen myself to uh, continue their, uh, this contact. Because, you know, it's very difficult in this world to be in touch with such beings. And uh, each person having 
a contact with the aliens have to understand and to choose why and what to do with them and uh, this is very difficult of course for most of the people to be in touch with them because the fear is the most ba the, the, the main barrier to be in touch with the uh, ETs and that's why they perfectly know our psychology and so I may say that I have been chosen from my childhood because I have had different contacts in my childhood but I'm not the only one of course and uh, many people have added some contact. But after a while, when they say that you have certain perception or of their uh, presence, they continue the contact. And if you accept it, you go on and you learn. They taught you and they uh, teach you, I mean, uh, different things. And the problem is to have the big picture. And the big picture involves us as a danger. And this is something very difficult for, you know, the anthropocentrism of the human beings to um, learn that we are the danger for them and they are not a danger for us. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Eric Julian. He's author of a book called The Science of Extraterrestrials, and we're trying to understand before we go further into the science that he has in his book, the background of the contacts, and I think David has a few questions well, he wants to follow I, up with. I want to continue on that question, Eric, because I think it's important to establish here when we talk about motive, and, and you just acknowledge that we have species that are they are superior to us. They understand our psychology and utilize that power and presumably an advanced intellectual and psychic power to be able to, for example, make it so that people are immobilized when they first appear. People don't engage them in violent interactions because people feel that they can't. A common element that we see in abduction cases and reports of abductions is that people are essentially mobilized. They, they, they can't react. They're essentially not in control of their own bodies. So if we assume that we have a species that's technologically superior, which I think is probably a fair assumption given how we see their craft work, my point is, why do you say they're extraterrestrial? Because they've told you so or they've given you some sort of real reason to think that? Oh, there is a real reason for, uh, you know, uh, the people paralyzed in their abduction experiences. Mm -hmm. Is that, you know, the, the time nature, which is central in my point, you know, in the science of extraterrestrials. When you have, you know, our body is constituted in different organs, uh, muscles or uh, lungs and or, you know, different uh, links, uh, networks. And according to what you're speaking about in your body, you will have different rates of time, different uh, time flows, and since the space-time is fractal, discontinuous, and especially the time, and three-dimensional, this is the, the new points in the book, you may easily understand that in fact our muscles are paralyzed in a higher time density, and this is just the nature of the time, it's not a matter of threat, and threat. I mean, coming from the ETs, it's just a matter, it's like when you go to the swimming pool in the water, you can move easily. This is the same thing. 
because the time bubble where they live in which you uh, come well, in their presence it's just like the water you can move your mass but you can feel things mm -hmm. because you know the nerves are like a tree with different branches it's a fractal structure that's why you feel things that's why you can uh, see things and okay I, I want to interrupt you for a second you just said that time is a fractal structure correct? that's right so you're saying that time is recursive yes fractal as many people can um, understand it it's you know mm -hmm. fundamentally I mean um, so the, the, the time is fundamentally cyclical and fractal it means that it's identically reproducing an object to different scale and time has different scales it means different rate of time different rate of flow okay there are different is, kinds of time depending on what uh, it depends mainly I mean in a normal life in the normal physical world it depends on the scale that's why there is a big difference. What do you mean by the scale? The scale, uh, I mean about, you know, when you speak about atoms, or when you speak about cells, molecules. Okay, so you uh, mean then that the time is different for something smaller than something larger? Yes, absolutely. And that's why, you know, so the consequences of, uh, you know, the um, new time conception is that we don't need any big bang, we don't need any dark matter, dark energy, any wormhole, any string theory, and so on. So, you know that uh, gravity is the, the weakest uh, force in the universe. It's 10 power 36, uh, weaker than uh, the other forces in the universe. Uh, I mean, the strong... What I want you to, to say is that we have different mysteries in physics, and we don't explain them easily. And what I say is we can explain them with a fractal time structure. So, the consequences of this uh, new structure is that we have a direction where people are paralyzed and so on when we have uh, with uh, ETs in our dreams, this is the same principle which is active then. Well, when we talk about the perception of time by the human psyche, we're talking about a psychological mechanism. You're now connecting this to an actual physical displacement of time. By what physics are you doing that? Well, we have been taught to understand physics in one way, and uh, it's a wrong way or uncompleted way. What I have learned is uh, when you focus on the time nature, you see that physicists uh, don't understand uh, what is the time nature. And it's uh, very uh, funny because I've just received a message from, uh, you know, Gordon Novel, uh, with the leader of the RAM team, maybe you have heard about him. It's a project for uh, replication mm -hmm. of an animation, and I've, I'm a member of the team. And he has received or he has um, looked at different studies about the time nature. And he has sent to me and different other people there, uh, I mean, in the team, and that uh, very brilliant mathematician has just proposed three-dimensional time uh, aside, you know, the uh, normal space-time signature, three and one, three dimension for the space, one dimension for the time. So a new proposal is three dimension for space and three dimension for time. And this is exactly what I have written in my book, The Science of Extraterrestrials, well before this mathematician. And so what I want to, to say is that don't be sure about what you know about physics because we have a lot of you know areas of shadow because we don't understand exactly and explain why we don't understand understand exactly so the consequences of this new vision of time is when it's fractal it means that the flow rate it's not the same and the quantum behavior of the matter itself is explained by, by the uh, time the fractal time nature <laughs> Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown, 
Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David and We're talking to Eric Julian. He's author of a book called The Science of Extraterrestrials, and we're trying to explore that science and his experiences to get a better understanding. So... Let me make sure I understand where we're going with this as we explore this. This is information that the extraterrestrials have transmitted to you to write in your book or what? Yes. It's good to, to make some, um, you know, uh, the history of my contacts with the extraterrestrials because maybe people will understand, you know, the path, how it works, how it comes to get this information. It's not, you know, just in, a, in bunking uh, the eyes. It's a long path, a long journey of contacts with ETs. It has begun, I must say, maybe the, uh, what is my professional experience for the listeners just to understand where I'm from, mm-hmm. if you uh, allow me to, to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I've been a fighter pilot trainee in the French Air Force after national selection. Then I've been military air traffic controller in the same French Air Force in the Air Force Base uh, of Reims, 112. So I've got my air traffic controller certificate. I've been a commercial jet pilot within the Air Myriad Air French Airline with uh, the uh, instrument flight rule professional pilot license and I've been certified for uh, the twin jet. I've been then a station manager uh, within the AOM French Alliance at Parioli after having my postgraduate degree in economic science and new technologies and at last I've been airport manager at Aéroport de Paris uh, with a certificate of airport senior manager from the National School of uh, Civilization. So uh, it means that I am, you know, someone which is more than a technician, more than a, I mean, I'm a technician more than a philosopher. So my experience with it is, has has began in 1997, 77, sorry, with the uh, appearance of a, an arranged brown ball over uh, Toulon, and it has got a, a prodigious acceleration with an angle of 90 degrees. And then after it was 1983, with uh, when I was traffic controller, with uh, I've got on my panoramic screen, sorry, a radar echo flying at about uh, 17,500 uh, miles per hour from east to west. So I was very uh, into grid, I mean, uh, very uh, surprised. But uh, I didn't care about a UFO at this time. And after uh, in 1990, 
1984, uh, there was a saucer over the uh, base of Reims, about 15 meters above the headquarters building. You know, it was very impressive for the, um, the colleagues um, being in the tower. You know, it's a higher part of the, the tower. And it was uh, very surprising for, for the controller, for my colleague. It was about uh, 200 meters from me, because I lived in the base at this time. And the first main phenomena for me was in 1990 with the appearance during a, 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 dra- a daydream, I mean, I mean, a technical design of an, uh, a ship, of an alien ship, but I didn't know that it was alien at the first sight. Uh, I just felt three creatures, but I was sure they were not human. And uh, I just felt that they were very different from, from me. And they wanted me to just have a sight on the diagram to understand how it worked. And I clearly understood uh, the function of different pieces, different parts of the ship. And uh, I must point out that it was in a daydream, in a lucid dream. And I was like, I've got this kind of intelligence level, uh, like a genius, to understand these things. But when I, I wake up, then I was, um, you know, very confused because I didn't uh, get all the information back from the, um, the lucid dream. So it was very um, uh, surprising to me to not to understand all things once I was uh, waked up. Well, after in December 2001, you see it's about uh, 12 or 11 years after, I've got the appearance of a saucer 300 meters away from our holiday resort on the Isle of Mauritius. It was reported by my, my daughter there. You know, the real uh, shape of the saucer, it was about 10 p.m., I mean at night, and there were different lights, different colors around, and a circle of different colors too uh, be- uh, below the, um, the the saucer. You know, it was like, you know, a sovereign of our, our family, of um, my family, I mean, and myself. In February 2000, 2002, for example, there were appearances of very fast lights just above the, the house, you know, uh, when I was in the um, island of Réunion. It's in the old Indian Ocean, you know. You know Madagascar, I guess? Mm-hmm. So it's just a site. It, it's in the south hemisphere having a uh, real... Here, here, here. Yeah. It's not that UFOs are not welcome. People see and report UFOs all over the world. We know that this is a genuine phenomenon. I think when you are connecting lucid dreams with UFO sightings, you're entering into very rocky territory there. The revelations you're describing, I think our audience would like to understand how you are connecting these things to the UFO sightings, but more importantly, Eric, and I bring this back to a question I asked you before, these things that you say are communicating with you, how do you know they're extraterrestrial? It's, you know, it is the first step to name them. I call them extra-temporals. It means extra or time flow. Out of time, right. Out of time. It's not exactly out of time. It's out of the physical time. And they come in our physical time when they materialize their ship. So the, the extraterrestrial ships have the ability to pass from macroscopic laws, it means the gravity, to microscopic laws, it means Eric. Eric, we're talking about technology, but the question is about provenance, sourcing. When you say extraterrestrial technology, you are implying that it is not of this planet. Yet, at the same time, when one states an extratemporal being, it is entirely conceivable, is it not, that we could be talking about creatures that are of this planet, but in a different time continuum, perhaps? Yes, but what we have to understand is that the space-time we know uh, about, you know, uh, the galaxies and uh, the storm, which are very far from us. Uh, we are 
talking about geography, and we were talking about extraterrestrials, and they were in a certain form extraterrestrials when they come from this source, from this planet, far from us, and when they were materialized, they were far from us. But when they change the time flow, they change the size of the universe itself. And that's why it's very difficult for us as physical body to understand that the universe itself is very small in their high time density. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're here talking with Eric Julian. He is author of The Science of Extraterrestrials. I want to understand this really because you're saying that these beings said, we are extraterrestrials, this is the information we want you to present. Is that how it is? Yes, it is, you know, uh, the way we first understand their nature. So it means that, in fact, uh, the, the first thing we think about when we see them is that they were... Asking you, I'm not asking you what you think about. I'm asking you what they told you. Oh, they don't tell me uh, that they are extraterrestrials at all. They just want me uh, to understand what is the nature of space-time in order for me to understand their real nature. This is not, you know, they, they don't claim to be something or this or that. Uh, they just told me and taught me what is the space-time nature in order to understand their nature and then our nature. And this is the, the main point. So it means that for most of the people on the Earth, we can call them extraterrestrial, but in fact, they are extratemporals, because this is a new way to understand the time nature. Okay, you're saying then that these are from another time, these beings. Well, if you say this to the people, they think that they come from the future, from uh, the past, and so on, but they come from both. They travel in time, but traveling in time doesn't mean they travel in physical time. It's just a matter of time, fractal time nature. It's when you're in a high time density, you, it's like you know, a panoramic landscape you see around, and you can go easily to the past or to the future. So that's why this is very difficult for us to understand the time, the real-time error, which is just a conditional time error. The problem, I think, with this, Eric, is that, and you stated you're, you're a pilot, I think there is a danger here in the process of interpretation, whereas you are saying that there is this entire realm of physics and this entire construct of time that has nothing to do with our understanding of time, yet somehow humans have managed to use technology to chop time into very small pieces and to manipulate it, which is, of course, how every bit of our computer and communications technology works. I'm curious how you reconcile the reality of an airplane that puts you in the air, that is respecting the laws of physics, and, and having you fly. Do you then negate 
the validity of physics as we know it to explain this theory that you have? How does that then affect the fact that the airplane flies? Well, no, I, I do not negate anything about our physics today. There are different layers in physics, you know. There are things which are very easy to understand, which is our uh, physical world, or at our scale. It means that, uh, you know, plane is the same scale of uh, space scale of a human body. It's not very big uh, or bigger than our body. If you speak about a star, it's another scale. If you speak about galaxy, it's another scale. If you speak about atom, atom, I mean, it's another scale. It's not a, there is nothing to do with uh, a normal plane. So a plane is a flying machine, but their machine are not flying. There are space-time warp drive machines, so and especially time warping time or time warping machines. All right. So, what is the energy source for this um, technology, Eric? This is, you know, a new way to understand physics. What is the energy? This is the question itself. What is the energy? The energy is something which is not understand, understood. I mean, in physics today, because there are different forms. I mean, of phys- of uh, energy. What I say and what I've learned is that the energy itself is a difference in between two time flows, and this is the only explanation today to understand what is really the the, the energy. If you speak about atomic energy, if you speak about biology, uh, biological energy, if you speak about gravity energy, and so on, you speak about different kinds of energy. And we don't really understand what is energy, what is mass, what is uh, the space and time. You know, we, we don't really understand. We can make measures. But for example, you know, in quantum physics, when you speak about the mass of a particle, you never, never measure any mass of a particle. You just measure an energy of the particle and you call it mass due to the E uh, equal MC2. Right. Energy time. and mass are the two manifestations of the same thing. Yes, but it, this is this is real when you speak about our scale, our pay scale. But it's, it's not proven that, I mean, hardly proven that mass equal energy at the microscopic scale. We think it's, it is the same thing, but it's not. Eric? Yes. Exactly how does a hydrogen bomb work? Well, this is a, a very good question. If you speak about, you know, the core of atom broken with explosions, you have to call, uh, you have to say, what is the core of the atom? This is made of quarks, I mean, first of protons and neutrons. But what are neutrons and protons? They are made of quarks. What are quarks made of? You know, you, you can f- follow up, you know, this discussion, I mean, about what is the nature of things. And w- at one time, you will reach the level of the space-time nature and the polygolated time nature. Did you know that the protons and electrons are, have uh, got a spin, of course, and the spin itself is just a time which does not change. It means that within the electrons and uh, protons, there is no time at all. It's a cyclical time. So that's why when you explain physics, it depends on who you want to teach physics. For the layman, it's quite easy to explain with different uh, easy words. But in fact, the deep physics is not understood at all. That's why there are different theories. That's why we don't understand UFO physics, you know. (laughs) That's why we even don't understand our quantum experiment, like, you know, the um, EPR paradox, you know. um, Mm -hmm. 
you heard about, you know, the um, EPR, Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen paradox. Uh, Eric, I want to ask you a question here, and that is, now, one of the things that we've observed in the UFO field is the tendency towards deception. That is, the alleged beings that arrive with UFOs are known or notorious, at least some of them, for misleading the people they contact. Now, do you get the feeling at all that maybe there's a little deception here, that maybe some of the information that you're getting from this source, whatever it is, might be misleading, Eric? Well, you know, I think that before our cameras era, era I mean, uh, before we, we, we've got cameras, it was easy to mislead us. And uh, because uh, just our perception, I mean, psychic perceptions were imposed with our physical perceptions. But now we can easily predict uh, what kind of form we can see. You just see a light. And that's why this is very difficult for people to have uh, evidence, because light is something very furtive, uh, still, and uh, very fast. So I explain in the book, The Science of Extraterrestrial, point by point, what is the explanation according to the absolute relativity, it means the fractal time nature, or the different cases, the, the four technologies, which are uh, double rotor, uh, superconductors, oscillator, and torus. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Eric Julian. He is the author of a book called The Science of Extraterrestrials, which you can get from the usual sources. David, we have, what, 10, 11 well, minutes left, and I know I you think had some questions. Important to, yeah, I think it's important that we touch upon certain things that Eric has said. Eric, you talked about the idea that at a subatomic level, that time essentially, you're stating that time can be negated, that time does not have the same meaning or the same value at a much smaller scale. That, to me, would contradict everything we we know about the nature of matter in that what we seem to know about the state of matter, and we don't know everything. So let me state that right up front. I'm not trying to claim here that science has all the answers. But the answers that we do have serve us very well in creating the technology that you referred to. When we talk about matter, we're talking about a manifestation, a frequency manifestation. Um, all matter, all signals, all matter vibrates at a certain frequency. That's the entire foundation of particle physics. 
and of studying things like quantum physics. String theory builds on this knowledge that we have about the quantum nature of matter and that the uncertainty of this matter is that sometimes it appears to be a particle, sometimes it appears to be a wave. What I submit to you is that the wave nature of matter relies on frequency. Frequency is a function of time. That would suggest that anything that exists with a certain vibrational frequency is indeed having its vibrational frequency measured in time. Now, how does that reconcile with your theory that time ceases to have meaning, if I understood it correctly, at very small scale? That would mean that matter couldn't exist, which would basically mean the universe couldn't exist. Well, this is a very important question you've asked here, David, because this is the core of the question of time. So when we talk about the duality of particle wave nature of the particle, what we call the particle, mm -hmm. in fact, this is, the, you know, we ourselves put a mistake in our understanding of the nature of things. When we speak about particles, we talk about the particle nature of the particle and the wave nature of the particle. You see? Mm -hmm. So it means this is a materialistic way, a point of view, I mean, a way of thinking. In fact, the particle, this is something which is absolutely uh, important and true, is that a particle is measured in our macroscopic scale with our instruments at our scale we have no proof at all that a particle is a particle at its own scale. And what I say is that, in fact, it is a wave, that's all. And, of course, we have uh, the two kind of behavior of the particles, a wave or particles. But it's always a particle when we measure it from our macroscopic scale. And that is the point, because until now, we don't have any new vision according to the scale, except from some physicists on the cutting edge of the science uh, who are thinking about the, the problem of the scale in the physics. And this is very important. So it means that uh, the microscopic scale, so the small, infinitely small, scale. Uh, we speak about waves. So what is a wave? What is a frequency? Like I told you at the beginning, we measure the frequency uh, based on the conventional time unit, which is the second. In the sinusoid itself, there is time flowing. Well, how do you call it this time within the frequency itself? You call it, for example, Fourier series. You call it different, or you can uh, describe it as energy levels and so on. But in fact, there is time within the uh, sinusoid itself, and our time, the arrow of time, what we call the linear time, is just an easy way to measure time. But it's according to our scale not to the scale of the wave itself. And this is why we call it fractal time, because it depends on, you know, the, the, the causality. We, when we speak about physics, we call, speak about the causality. The causality itself depends on the entropy. The entropy itself will, will depend on the frequency. And you know that in quantum physics, there is no uh, strict causality, because we use probabilities. You know, this is very easy to link. There is no strict causality in quantum physics because there is probabilities of facts and the world really exists too in the macroscopic microscopic scale uh, I mean small scales but it's not the same one it's not the same causality as the one we see from our bigger scale from our physical scale you know we don't have a lot of time left Eric and I know there's a lot of ground in your book and a lot of things that we might want to cover but maybe I can just focus on a fast question or two and then David probably has a couple of fast questions and that is we have a theory here that you're presenting that is certainly different than the conventional theory. So why should we take what you say seriously and why should we give it more credibility? I don't ask anyone 
to believe me in any uh, way uh, or sort of way. I mean, I just want people to think by themselves. And what I can say is that some scientists have been astonished by this book in France, in United States. Did you know that PhD in physics is working on it and uh, want, wants to uh, present a new theory on it? So it means that and, uh, in the book, I'm uh, praising other scientists working on the, um, the new kind of time nature. So I sit different people. What I want the people to know is just to read a book, see what is interesting in it, and whether it's uh, worthy or not. It means that we have to read, to study, and not to think or to have a preconception of things. Well, I just want people to rethink the nature of things, and especially the time. Eric, on the Paracast, we talk a lot about rethinking the issues of UFOs, trying to understand them in a rational, reasonable light. We look at the experiences that people have had. We look at the history of sightings over time, and we find a lot of things. We find that sightings have been going on throughout most of recorded history, not just in the atomic age. We find out that it would appear that the things that people report being told by these beings, whatever they might be, would indicate that there is a great level of deception going on. It's very important when someone has experiences to try to understand them in an objective light, and most importantly, to remove the element of ego in as much as that's even possible, given that we're humans recounting human experiences. It is perhaps less than constructive in postulating scientific theories that seem devoid of science. It, it's so important to build on our understanding of the universe, and indeed, major scientific discoveries have happened that have created quantum leaps in our knowledge. But this has always come on top of the hard work done by scientists throughout thousands of years. It's how we have our math, it's how we have our language, and those traditions of building on knowledge have been very productive. I think it's very important that when you talk about these things that you don't discredit and don't throw out the discipline of logic and reason that science is instrumental in producing for us as a species. It, it is not in any way perfect, but it is certainly better than a system built solely on belief. I find it hard to understand, Eric, where the science comes into play in your discussion of the science of extraterrestrials, given that we don't know if these creatures are actually extraterrestrial or not. You know, I think we're out of time here, but I wanted to thank Eric Julian, the author of a book called The Science of Extraterrestrials. Now, is this available from the standard book resellers? Well, for the moment, it's uh, available on alliesbooks.com and on amazon.com, too. Okay. Again, Eric, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you, Gene, and thank you, David. Have a great night. Thank you. want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
Oh man, boy, Gene, I I think I did okay holding myself back because honestly, I wanted to bite this guy's head off. I got the sense in the way you said the name Eric that you were holding back something more oh. than just mentioning his name. You wanted to say something that you sort of restrained yourself doing. Yes. Well, it's all the things we didn't bring up, Gene, and just so our listeners understand. Last May, this guy had been saying for for months, had been talking about how this chunk of a comet was going to hit the planet Earth. It was going to create a tsunami that was going to destroy, completely obliterate the east coast of the United States. It was going to destroy Europe. He created some real uh, sensation around this. Um, in fact, he was associated with the, and I have to keep myself from laughing here too, the Michael Salas exopolitical organization, Wet Dream Fantasy. And what happened was when he basically made these claims about, you know, the, well, we didn't talk about this on the show, you see. It's, it's about the extraterrestrials that come from some unspecified planet, as you heard his response. He couldn't quite pin them on any particular planet because they're from out of time, so it's not really... Oh, hell, man. You know what? Give me some French wine. Let's drink a bunch of French wine, and maybe this junk will make some sort of sense. I was thinking, though, which sounds almost ridiculous, and I'm going to drop this. You know what I'm going to drop. I'm going to drop the Blue Meanie Bomb. As a child, he saw the movie Yellow Submarine, the Beatles cartoon, the famous cult cartoon. It's not a cartoon. It's an animated movie. It's not a cartoon. Okay, we'll call it an animated movie. That's right. An animated tour de force, melding imagery and music in a way that never had been done before that. Okay. You were saying. It so influenced him, he had lucid dreams about the blue meanies who manifested themselves not as musicators, or maybe they are musicators, I don't know, we never got into that. Instead, they became extraterrestrials or time travelers or none of the above and fed him junk science. That could be one explanation. We could be talking about just a lot of wine. We could be talking about mental illness, epileptic seizures. I don't know, man. All I know is that listening to this person, try to create his own science, try to take lucid dreams. And basically, he was admitting that he was dreaming. He basically said it. And that he took these things to be actual revelations. This is the kind of junk, Gene, that really makes it difficult to have a serious conversation with the mainstream world about UFOs. It's people like this. When, when he made these claims about this big tsunami that was going to hit the East Coast of the United States and Europe, the exopolitics guys essentially kicked them off their website. They thought he was too loony for them. So he then basically decided that he was going to devote his life to saving all the people and spreading the word. Now, of course, May 25th came of 2006 and nothing happened. There was no huge set of tsunamis that hit the earth. There was no cometary fragment that hit the earth. And even the claims around that, this guy has no real grasp of physics, no real understanding of science. I am astounded that this person is allowed to fly airplanes. It just boggles the mind. Well, how do pilots can... have to have a scientific well, knowledge other than avoiding a crash? Sure. They have to understand the physics of how their airplane works. Well, I, you know, then there's John Travolta. I guess he flies a 747. What the hell do I know? If you got a guy like this making these claims, and of course, what happened was May 25th came and went. There was no tsunami. There were no cometary fragments in the Earth. Then what this guy said, I mean, he, he put this in, in print, man. He, he wrote this so people could read it for the rest of time. 
He claimed that these cometary fragments were going to hit the Earth because the extraterrestrial intelligence is... You know, I almost have to do this in like a fake accent. Because the extraterrestrials were going to punish us for evoking a nuclear war with Iran. There was a secret nuclear strike ordered on Iran. And the U.S. government listened to Eric Julian's proclamations of disaster. And then what they did was to internally disregard the ability to attack Iran. So the extraterrestrial knew this. So what they did was they decided to divert the cometary fragments from hitting the Earth. Therefore, Eric Julian has saved the Earth from imminent disaster. What a load of crap. Well, you know, this way, if it really happens, you could say it happened. Yeah, right. If it doesn't happen, you could say the extraterrestrials prevented oh, it from happening. Sure they did. So whatever the outcome, you're correct. Yeah. Whatever the outcome, you're full of crap. This is junk. This guy is a joke. And, you know, of course, we're going to get emails from our listeners who are going to say, well, some of them are going to say, gee, you're trashing him after the fact. You're attacking him after he's off the air. Look, we gave this guy a chance to rant, to spout his nonsense, to disregard physics, to evoke pseudoscience, the likes of which I haven't heard since, oh, I don't know, man. I, we gave him a chance to speak. He came on. He presented his quote-unquote case. It was nonsensical. It was illogical. It was ridiculous. And Don't hold back. Well, Tell us what you really think. We gave him a chance to speak. I had to sort of spank him at the end, Gene, because I can only listen to so much of this junk, and then I have to respond to it. He went off the air, and now we're having our five minutes to discuss amongst ourselves what we thought of this guy, and I think he's an absolute charlatan. I think this guy has nothing to offer. I think he's someone who's desperate for attention, who's tried to come up with some amalgamation of a bunch of different mythologies, and he presents this as the science of extraterrestrials. I contend, Gene, that there's no science there. There's nothing to do with extraterrestrials there. This is someone who is essentially either making this up or is hearing voices in his head, and he should have his head examined. And, you know, there are going to be some of our listeners who are going to write in and say, well, why didn't you say this to him when he was on the air? Well, again, we were giving him a chance to talk. I think I took him to task for what he said in a somewhat reasonable way. And if you Given said to him, Eric, you need to have your head examined, what purpose yeah. would that serve? Well, it won't serve any purpose. Basically, he'll hang up, and I wouldn't blame him for hanging up at that point. God knows, Gene, there were more than a couple of times during this interview that I wanted to hang up because the crap was flying so thick. This, I think, though, underscores also the reality of the media that covers paranormal stuff. This joker has gone on coast to coast where, you know, Bobblehead and Roy interviewed him and he spouted this nonsense. And, and I, I'd love to go back and find those shows where he was on to listen to how Bobblehead and Cheesemonger actually were able to listen to this stuff and not break out laughing because it was just so silly. They turned off their mics. Yeah, there you go. That's what I did. I turned off my mic and I let it flow and I tried to focus the conversation as you did and you asked some questions. I know you held back. Look, let's just leave it be and let's yeah. get on to some real stuff of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Now, it's often said that everything... I know is wrong, and I grant that. And now Neil Adams is here to tell us that a lot of the things we thought we knew or suspected or theorized about how the planets were formed and about their life cycle is also wrong. Do I have it right? Well, let's just kind of back up just a little bit philosophically and historically. We've pretty much been wrong about everything. <laughs> we, we don't know our, our, uh, our rear from our elbows because every century or so, somebody comes along 
someone and says, well, that stuff that you thought was right, it's wrong. You thought that the sun went around the earth. Well, it doesn't. All the things that we thought generally have turned out not to be true. So I don't think I'm necessarily going against the grain here when I say, let's carry on that tradition, because the idea is to correct mistakes and to move on. So if people are upset by me pointing out that there might be some mistakes, I think I follow a great historic tradition. I think that, you know, if there's things that are wrong, it's time to correct them. And there are a few things that are wrong. So to give you a quick idea, about 150 years ago, these philosopher scientists told us all this stuff, all this debris was floating around in our galaxy bumping and crashing into one another, and it's just tons and tons and tons, well, and I say tons, of course I mean billions of tons of stuff just kind of collected as this like big giant junkyard in the galaxy. And gravity came along at some point. Apparently it wasn't there first, but of course some scientists will say it was, but if it was, why well, didn't do anything? It then collected all this stuff and kind of spun it around and turned it into our solar system with the sun and all these planets and moons. And we are sort of to believe this because these fellows 150 years ago said that's how it happened. And so we've sort of been working on this theory all along. Now, if you believe that, fine. Is that like if you believe that I've got a bridge in Brooklyn that I could sell you real cheap? Yeah, I think it's sort of like that. Not because they weren't nice guys. I think they were probably very nice guys and took care of their children. And, you know, it's 150 years ago. The chances of them being right is, you know, that's the way history doesn't work. I don't think that's right. Now, if it was right, you sort of have to ask a few questions. One of the first questions would be, let me see, for how many billions of years did this stuff collect before it became this conglomeration of stuff that we turned into a solar system? At that point, the universe was only 10 billion years old because it's 4.5 billion years ago, so the universe was 10 billion years old. Then how long was it collecting this debris? Say, we'll give it a number, 5 billion years? What do you think? It was okay. five, 6 billion, yeah. 4 billion? It just, the galaxy was here, so it collected all this debris so let's just say it collected it for 5 billion years right. and made our solar system well it's been 4.5 billion years since then did the collection process stop why isn't there another bunch of stuff still collecting with us and our planets and moons and suns growing rapidly because more stuff is being collected well the reason it's not happening is because it's a stupid theory to begin with <laughs> there wasn't this junkyard of stuff waiting to be collected. There's also a very odd description of this stuff, and that is, well, we think it's uh, hydrogen. And some guy over here will say, oh, well, but it was also giant meteorites. And you kind of go, okay, is it hydrogen or giant meteorites? Because there's a big difference between the two. Well, we think it's meteorites because there are leftover meteorites that are still in our galaxy and still come crashing to the Earth. So it was a whole lot of meteorites. No, it was hydrogen. It was a lot of hydrogen from the Big Bang. You know, everything splattered out and you got a lot of hydrogen. Well, you guys ought to make up your mind before you come at me with a theory whether it's hydrogen or it's meteorites. Because if it's meteorites we have a problem. Because 4.5 billion years ago we actually had some leftover meteorites from those days. And the only meteorites in our galaxy or in our general area, our solar system, that exists from 4.5 billion years ago are things called chondrite meteorites. And chondrite meteorites cannot collect on a planet or a surface of any other kind. They have to collect in space. There's no silicate meteorites. There's no iron meteorites. There are no meteorites from those days that are anything but chondrite meteorites. 
excuse me, guys, are you saying 4.5 billion years ago there was just a whole lot of chondrite meteorites and they all assembled in space? Well, the problem is that all of this stuff is really unknown by science. And we have to kind of sit back and say, okay, isn't it time for us to say, all right, 150 years, enough. Let's come up with a better theory. Let's sit down and talk about it and talk about what that theory could be. But okay, that's a good introduction, by the way. But to tell you, but to tell you the truth, <laughs> that's not what my theory is about. <laughs> oh, boy. On the Paracast, we're talking with Neil Adams, and he, we'll call him a student of geology, a student of the sciences, and very well known, by the way, as an artist. And we're trying to put together, or at least he's trying to help us put together, a history of, I guess, the universe, the solar system, the planet Earth, etc., etc. And we have to dismiss the possibility that it was assembled then in six days. Yeah, right. <laughs> Look at I don't mean to cast asparagus on all the stuff that's gone before, but if you start to look at it logically, then you have to look at a progression, and if you look at a progression, that means you have to study all the sciences. And one of the things that I've done that actually I don't find happening a whole lot is I've studied all the sciences. Most scientists are specialists. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I'm simply saying that it's very hard to put together a good conglomeration of a theory if you only study one thing. About 40 years ago, a guy named Samuel Warren Carey, professor of geology Samuel Warren Carey, studied tectonics, and so did all the geologists in the world because, oh boy, it was Mr. Joy Boy of, of geology because it occurred to somebody that maybe this impression that we have that Africa and South America fit together might be true. Maybe they did fit together. And so all of geology got together in this, like, you know, massive meeting room. Actually, it's not true, but they all got together and they said, maybe all the continents were together. Wouldn't that be cool? And maybe we can prove it. And so what they did was they started to prove it. They proved that through tectonic matching that all the continents matched tectonically in the Atlantic Ocean. They also proved that most of the dinosaurs during the Triassic and the Jurassic existed on all the continents on Earth. Tyrannosaurus rex existed on all the continents. Then they saw that certain flora plants existed from, let's say, North America to Europe. How is that possible? It would be possible only if those continents were connected. So they said, well, in that case, this is our theory. Our theory is that all the continents were collected in one big giant island on one side of the earth. And of course, I'm this young artist and I'm listening to all this stuff and it's like, oh, cool. Man, I, I can see how Africa and South America could fit together. This is so cool. Uh, uh, wait a second. Well, they're all the continents are together on one side of the Earth? That's weird. I'm in my Gil Kane space taxi jinking through space, and I approach the planet Earth, and there's the planet Earth, and it's got this one big island on one side, and I travel around Earth, and the rest of it is water. Three quarters of it is water. And I go, that is the weirdest planet I've ever seen in my life. That is silly. Sometimes Maybe you just explain the UFO enigma here. <laughs> Why do we have UFOs? I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception, because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. 
So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Spangler and David Bianney. You never know what's going to happen next. in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Neil Adams, student of geology and other sciences, joins us. And we were trying to find a way to describe you. And I tried that. A, a and, royal pain in the ass. Royal okay. pain in the ass is the, my, my best. I thought we used that for David, but I happen to like David, so... <laughs> Well, actually, that's what publishers call me, is, is Royal Pain in the Ass. So that's pretty Welcome to the though. club. You're preaching to the yeah. choir. So, Neil, this is what you're talking about, the supercontinent. This is the Pangea concept. Yeah, right? the, yeah. the supercontinent okay. of Pangea. Now, what Samuel Warren Carey back in those days said as he arrived in America and presented his papers is he said, well, wait a second. It may be true that all the continents on Earth were gathered in one big giant continent, but that continent wrapped around a smaller Earth. Oh, that's a, a series of problems, yeah. Trembled, like, whoa, wait a second, you can't say that. He said, no, no, listen, geologically, that's exactly what makes sense. Everything about the geology of it makes sense that way. If the Earth were smaller and all the continents were wrapped around the Earth, you basically would have an Earth that grew, and as it grew, it would crack apart, and the continents would move away from one another. And that makes sense. Geologically speaking, exactly the same things that you're talking about, tectonically, all the tectonics would match, all the animals would be the same animals that would be in every part of the earth, all the plants, blah, 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 all the rest of it. Geologically, it works better. What about the oceans? What about the oceans? Well, you know, Mm -hmm. the funny thing is, during the ages of the dinosaurs, Jurassic and Jurassic, there were no oceans. There were what they call shallow seas. In fact, we know that, geologically speaking, that there were shallow seas on the continents. The middle Midwest of the United States was a big, gigantic, shallow sea. Now, a shallow sea is not exactly shallow. It can be a half mile deep. So it's basically an ocean, only less. But if somebody said to you, well, you know, this Adam's guy can't be right. You know, uh, you know, you can go and get fish fossils under the ocean that are, you know, 200 million years old and, and 300 million years old. And the answer to that would be, no, you can, because there are no in fact, there are no fossils of ancient fish under the deep oceans 
at all past 180 million years ago. In fact, when they sent ships out to find fossils, in the first 10 years of digging in the ocean, they couldn't find anything older than 70 million years old. Later on, they found some areas that were older. So if somebody said to you, well, where do you hunt for fish fossils? The answer would be Utah. Salt Lake. Yeah, where the, Italy. those salt flats come yeah. from. Right. So right. if you're going to hunt for ancient fish fossils, you don't do it under the ocean. You do it on the land. Why? Because the land had shallow seas. And those shallow seas, as the earth grew, were the seas or the oceans of the world. And then as the earth cracked apart, those shallow seas drained off into the cracked areas, the cracked and spreading areas, and became the oceans of today. Now you'd go, well, there must have been, you're talking about shallow seas. I mean, how much ocean could there be? You know, that's, it would just fill the bottom of that ocean. Not really true. Because if you have a growing earth, then something must make the matter that makes that earth. There must be an engine of production that creates that earth. And that question, by the way, is the question that defeated Samuel Warren Carey. Well, that's one of the questions that defeated him. Because Sam Carey said the earth grew. Scientists said, not geologists, scientists said, what is the mechanism that you have that you can prove that the earth grew? And Sam didn't have that. <laughs> Why? Because Sam was a geologist. <laughs> He'd have to be a physicist to understand how something like that could work, and he wasn't. He'd have to be a cosmologist to understand the universe, and he wasn't. He did talk to some paleontologists who said, you know, golly, I think that the earth must have been smaller because there were dinosaurs out there that were four and five times the size of animals today, so the gravity must have been much less, but that wasn't enough. He had to show what the mechanism was that allowed the earth to gain mass and grow, and so what happened was they shot him down. Mm -hmm. What's the mechanism then? Uh, well, you know, it occurred to me as an artist working in my, my little apartment, I thought, boy, that, that poor son of a gun. He really had himself shot down. I, I mean, whoever this guy is, he, he took it in the side, I'm telling you. Now, we all believe, we all, quote, believe that the Earth stayed the same size, and there was one big giant island on one side of the Earth. Did anybody ever check the other side? If there's tectonic matching in the Atlantic, is there tectonic matching in the Pacific as well? Because that would sort of prove that he was right. But they didn't do tectonic matching because, well, we already know, so we don't have to do that. Of course, later on they did, and they discovered that the land actually fits together in the Pacific as well as the Atlantic. So they yeah. thought they knew, but they didn't know. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's how it goes. So anyway, I'm this artist and writer, and I, and I like science. I've always liked science. Since I was 13, I used to read science books like adventure books. I really love it, you know, and I like to break it down into a simple form because all this complicated Latin, you know, and five-syllable words, I don't like that very much, and higher math really bugs me. But science itself, I really love science, and I really love physics, and I thought, you know, maybe I could find that mechanism if I studied enough, because, you know, I can read any book anybody else can read, and maybe in a couple of years I'll do a graphic novel. How about that? So I decided that's what I was going to do. So three years later, I figured it out, I think. And so I started a graphic novel, and I drew nine pages. And then I sat back, and I read what I wrote, and I said, to quote Neil Adams, this is a lot of baloney, Mr. Adams. You don't know what you're talking about. And I thought, well, you're right. So I put those pages down. 35 years later, I picked those pages up again. And I started to work on the book because I had figured out what the solution was. It took me 35 years. Long time. But I was busy doing other things in the meantime. It wasn't like, I, no, I wasn't busy. I, I had things to do. So I figured it out. What's the mechanism? Well, matter is made at, in the outer core of the earth. 
on the inside. And it's made in the electromagnetic field of the Earth, and it's made in a way that a guy named Carl David Anderson discovered in 1932, where he discovered or the, initiated the discovery of what's called pair production. Turns out that spontaneously, seemingly without anybody understanding it, a high-energy photon will smack into something that you can't see and you don't know what it is, it will knock apart an electron and a positron, and it will fly off in two opposite directions. And they weren't there before. That electron and positron will have, have absorbed the energy of, of the high-energy photon, and they will exist as matter, one negative and one positive, the same size. Now, the sad thing about that is that the positron will immediately seek out an electron and annihilate it along with itself. That kind of messed up science, because science up to that point was saying, well, matter cannot be created or destroyed. You know, it's one of those things that you say in science because you sound very profound. That's what they told me in school. They told me that in high school. Right. You can't sure. you can't be created or destroyed. And here you go. This photon smashes into something that you can't see and creates two particles of matter. And then one of those particles goes and finds an electron and annihilates it with itself, and they both disappear. Actually, that made the scientists happy because what the scientists said was, you know why that is? Because that's antimatter, and antimatter destroys matter. So everything is well with the world. We've discovered antimatter. Ma antimatter destroys matter. And now we have something for comic book writers and science fiction writers to write about for the next hundred years. And some of us have been doing that. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we have Neil Adams, an artist and a student of science. So here you have antimatter, and it's, it gets a really bad reputation. You know, antimatter, gee, it destroys matter. It's, uh, it's the worst thing in the world. Actually, the funny thing is, antimatter doesn't actually destroy matter. What it does is it approaches a, a particle of antimatter, a positron, approaches an electron, and it slows down just as it gets to it. And they start to orbit one another, and they produce a material for a brief instant called positronium, and then they disappear. And when they disappear, two particles, two gamma rays fly out from them, which is exactly the energy of the photon that created them to begin with. And so scientists have said, well, you know, it all equals out, doesn't it? I mean, he gets a certain amount of energy, makes these two things, these two of them crash together, and they make the same amount of energy, so we're pretty much off the hook. So we haven't really disobeyed the law, everything's fine. Now, if you were, you know, sticky about it, you would say, wait a second, that positron and that electron, both of them have electromagnetic fields, and those were created seemingly, and those were dis destroyed seemingly. Forget the energy. Now, are you saying... <laughs> That electromagnetic energy doesn't count. Well, no, it doesn't count because it's not real. Well, wait a second. If it was there to be hit, it existed, didn't it? And when it went back together, did they really destroy each other or did they just simply disappear? Because if I was a fish in the ocean, I would say the water doesn't exist. Well, yeah. let me ask you a question, Neil, because it's an interesting theory. Do we have anything that we've seen elsewhere in the solar system that would validate this? For example, we have a planet that is a good amount like Earth. It's called Venus. Mm-hmm. 
What have we seen on Venus where we don't have oceans to sort of uh, muddy up the picture, as it were, no pun intended, but how do observations of Venus either support or not support this theory? Well, uh, observations of Venus don't support it because uh, because Venus is, very, first of all, very, very hard to see. The only way you can see it is with x-rays, and mm-hmm. they, it seems to be bubbling and spewing all the time, and it's very hard to see it tectonically. If you want to actually view something that makes sense, then the best place to look is Mars, because Mars, first of all, is not covered with clouds, and then doesn't right. have any water, it's a, and it seems to be, or at least scientists said it wasn't for about 50 years, but only recently scientists have said that it's tectonically active, like the Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I wrote letters to NASA insisting that it was tectonically active, and in fact, there's a whole bunch of school kids that wrote letters to NASA saying, are you people crazy? Of course it's tectonically active, and a whole bunch of school kids, you can find them on the net, these letters from these kids who wrote to NASA saying, no, it's clearly tectonically active. Are you crazy? Well, you got to watch out for these school kids because yeah. they know things. What the heck? Anyway, so, I mean, I tried to convince uh, NASA, but what they did was after a while they said, we've had a five-year plan in which we've investigated Mars, and it turns out that Mars is as tectonically active as the Earth. That's what that veils Mars and Mars thing there, that big crack in the, in the front mm-hmm. of Mars. We, we think that that has tectonic origin and maybe was not created by water. So you hear you have a tectonically active other planet. Well, tectonically active, if you translate it into some kind of weird English, means that the surface is cracking and spreading apart. So if you look at some of my videos, you can see that, but you can also see it in maps of Mars, and you can see it in these elevation maps of Mars even better when they make a rainbow out of it, and you can see the elevations. And what you see are these cracks and areas that seem to have pulled apart. Now, if that's the case, that's sort of like the Earth. Now, I've also done the same thing on the moon. I've also done the same thing on the moon of Ganymede and also the moon Europe, where I show how these surface textures have pulled apart and spread. Now, you can say, well, so they pulled apart. But unfortunately, folks, (laughs) if you pull apart something that's on a ball, it pretty much got no place to go because you're on a ball. So you either have to, like, dive back into the planet or the ball is growing. Now, what I say is the ball is growing. Now, if I'm correct, now, of course, Again, it's not me. You know, it's Sam Carey. All I did was I discovered the mechanism. But if the ball is growing, then that would mean a couple of things on Earth and other planets, but mostly on Earth because that's the one we know. It would mean that, for example, 200 million years ago, animals could have existed that were four to five times the size of the animals that exist today. Because that would mean that the gravity was much, much, much lighter. And I'm not talking about animals that were twice as big. I'm not talking about animals that were three times as big. I'm talking about animals that were four and five times as big as animals today. And who have the same density bone as animals have today. How do I know that? Uh, I studied it. (laughs) Now, if that's the case, then what you would see is, you would see things like, let me see, families of fish that exist on the continental plates would be greater in number than families of fish that exist in the ocean. And families of fish that exist in the ocean would be far greater than families of fish that would exist in the deep ocean because they didn't have enough time to evolve. Well, it turns out that that's true. Then you might think, well, you'd really have to prove that all the continents connected in the Pacific, Mr. Adams. And Mr. Adams would say, well, you know what? 
geology discovered that they did. And you know what they do about it with that information? They don't talk very much about it. You never hear about Rodinia, you know? Have you heard of Rodinia? So like some little place in the back of your mind, Rodinia, I don't know. Isn't, no. that, a, isn't that a Groucho Marx thing? What is Rodinia, it? Rodinia, I don't know what that is. Well, Rodinia is, according to geology, a big giant island that existed in the Pacific, just like the big giant island that existed in, in the Atlantic. So apparently, the land was connected in the Pacific into a big giant island. So if you were to say to a geologist, excuse me, that, uh, doesn't that mean that all the land was covered the whole earth? Because you're saying it's connected on this side and it's connected on that side. And he would say, well, no, of course, because Rodinia happened at a time, you know, way before Pangaea. You say, well, when did it? When did it happen? Well, we estimate that it happened around, you know, maybe 900 million years ago to say 700 million years ago. You go 900 million to 700 million. That's a big spread of time. Can you pin that down? They go, well, no, we no, we can't. Well, okay. What's your proof that it existed then? Uh, well, we. We don't really have any proof. You have no proof? So you're saying <laughs> that it existed 700... What if I said to you it existed 180 million years ago, just like uh, a Pangaea? Well, there's no actual proof of the time, but, you know, of course it couldn't exist then because then you'd have Pangaea together and then you'd have Rodinia together, and, of course, that would mean that the Earth would be smaller and that's impossible, so that's ridiculous. So we'll assign it to a time 700 million years ago. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen. I'll tell you what, before we assign any other time, let me assign this. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have an entertaining session exploring the frontiers of science with Neil Adams, a student of the sciences and a very, very talented artist. David, I know that you've been taking little notes. Yes, and, please ask questions. And you're ready to pounce. Well, here's a, here's a left-field question, Neil. Let me... Uh, correlate this to a very interesting discovery recently. I'm curious to know what you think about this discovery that there's a huge chunk of the Earth's crust missing in the Atlantic. I'm yeah. sure you heard about that, right? Well, not only is there a huge chunk of Earth's crust missing, missing the, in the Atlantic, but there's, mm -hmm. you're talking about the undersea crust. Right. There is 
three quarters of the crust of the earth is missing completely. Remember the story I told at the beginning of this uh, little get together? And I said that, you know, 150 years ago, all these science or these scientists, philosophers got together and said, this is how our solar system assembled. When they said that, and the science that follows that says specifically that at the beginning, when earth assembled, because of all the crashing of all the meteorites or whatever it was that came together that formed the planet earth, that the earth was molten right. and differentiated. Mm -hmm. A differentiated is pretty, uh, a pretty basic concept. Differentiated means that all the heavy stuff went to the center and all the light stuff stayed on the top, sort of like a cauldron when you're taking ore down to iron. Sure. All the light stuff goes to the top, and we right, call that so. slag. Right. And we chip that off, and down below, that's the iron. So that's what the Earth did, according to science. Now, all of geology will tell you this. All the geologists in the world, they'll tell you that Earth was molten, and it differentiated. So all the iron went to the center, and all the light stuff stayed on the top. So the light stuff on the top, in our case, is what's called granitic rock. Underneath that... And that's about 2.5 times the, the weight of water. Underneath that, you have basalts. They're between, say, 3.0 times uh, and 3.3 times the weight of water. So they're heavier. So they go below the granitic rock. So if that's what happened, according to geology, then you have this smooth ball of granitic rock about 2.5 miles thick. And underneath that, you have basalt. But you know, the planet that we live on has two-thirds of that stuff missing. <laughs> it's gone. Where Those thieves from the other planets. From Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice right. took them. <laughs> they needed crust. We need well, crust. What's the story? What's the story? The earth grew, and it cracked apart and spread. And that upper crust that you see was really on a smaller earth, and it all fit together then as granitic rock. <laughs> okay, so what? Do so what's that space under? What's that space under the ocean? Yeah, I think yeah. that's a crack. I think that's a crack and a spread that didn't get filled with sediments. That's all. That's all. Very simple. So here's the thing, Neil. Would we expect to see that? Not only in the Atlantic, but in the Pacific as well, sure. in other Absolutely. oceans on the planet? Absolutely, sure. Have we seen that elsewhere on the planet? Well, this is the first one we found, isn't it? Those are pretty big oceans there. That's three-quarters of the Earth, three, two-thirds to three-quarters of the Earth that uh, you mm -hmm. know we don't really get down to very much. You know, we're lucky we can fly over North America and get a decent look at it. And, and you can get the plane to leave on time. <laughs> well, here, let me, let me ask a question related sure. to all this, because you know, I'm not a geologist, and I'm not even necessarily a student of geology. You don't have to be. Well, but be let me perfectly ask you honest. You don't have no, to. No, sure, sure. But here's the thing. So you, you've got a planet. Let's let's play this game. You've got a planet that's growing. That's expanding. Growing. Um, Please don't say expanding because that's what balloons do. Pop. <laughs> well, um, well, we'll pop for other reasons, not geological, just emotional reasons. This planet will pop like a grape. But so you've got this planet growing, and you've got these shallow seas that have now basically spreading out to fill this area that's growing. Um, is the assumption then, Neil, and, and again, just help me be, just in terms of basic physics here, if we have the oceans at a certain depth now that cover three-quarters of the, you know, 70% of the planet. Very, very deep, too. Very deep. So where did... All that water come from. Well, yeah, sure. The first that, question you question. ask, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. If you have matter, if you have a planet and you have in the core of the planet, you have matter being created, in order for you to have a reasonably balanced planet, 
you're going to make and process matter in all atom sizes, okay, up and down the, the, the chart. You're not just going to make, you know, iron. You're just not going to make well, sodium. You're going to make, I mean, sulfur. You're not going to make just one kind of atom. You're going to make all the atoms. You're going to make all the uh, crystal atoms. You're going to make all the solid. You're going to make you're going to make all the gases. So what you're going to make is, as well as anything else inside this core of the Earth, you're going to make hydrogen and you're going to make oxygen. And hydrogen and oxygen and all the other gases are going to find their way very easily to the surface of the planet through fissures and cracks in the silicate mantle of the Earth. And they're going to come out, well, actually, they're going to come out in all those rifts that go around the Earth. There's something like 60,000 miles of rifts that travel through the oceans around the Earth. And all those gases are going to come up through those rifts, and they're going to come up through the volcanoes, and they're going to come up, up through the, you know, the, the old faithful and places like that, and they're going to enter the atmosphere, and they're going to condense into water. Not all of them, just the hydrogen and the oxygen. Now, as the Earth grows, what happens is that the electromagnetic field of the Earth becomes stronger. The gravity becomes stronger. Its ability to hold on to gases becomes better and greater. Now, you may know this. You may have read it in a book sometime, but hydrogen blows off into space from Earth. In other words, if there was no resupply of hydrogen, then the hydrogen that blows off into space would deplete our atmosphere of hydrogen. So what's, what's happening is that hydrogen is blowing off into space because it's the lightest of the gases, blows off into space, and it's replenished by the Earth. Now, there may be processes and theories around that try to describe what this replenishment is, but there is no satisfactory theory until you come to this theory. This theory says all the gases and all the rest of the stuff is made inside of the Earth and the core of the Earth comes up through the surface and refurbishes all the gases in, on the Earth. And as the gravity becomes greater, we are able to capture and hold more of our gases, and more of those gases get together and become water and fall into the ocean. So just as the Earth grows and all the amounts of all the other materials grow, so does water. Does what you're explaining, Neil, then assume that instead of the theories about what constitutes the core of the planet that you're proposing that we actually know what constitutes the core of the planet because one of the things I, and no. I can't just well this is this brings up some questions then because if yeah. we say that the gravity increase you know as the size of the planet increases its electromagnetic field increases is not the electromagnetic field of the planet a function of activity in the core not necessarily the outer part of the planet again just okay. fill, fill in the gaps from here well, there's an awful lot of gaps, unfortunately. Right. Uh, I can give you some of the questions that you should be asking me. <laughs> and so I'll give you a couple. If there's a, such tremendous gravity on a planet and a planet grows, why isn't there more pressure toward the center of the planet? And how can you make stuff into the center of the planet? Isn't there solid iron down there? Isn't it just dense with iron? And the answer to that is that there's a difference between gravity and pressure. Gravity and pressure are two totally different things. Pressure can be stopped. Gravity cannot be stopped. Pressure can be relieved. So if you, for example, are under an arch and there's a cathedral above you and there's an arch above your head, if the arch is constructed well, you don't feel the cathedral above you. You don't feel the pressure of that cathedral. You may feel the pressure of air and you may feel the pressure of water, but you don't feel the pressure of stone because the stone, the crystalline structure of the stone supports it 
and it doesn't press on you because you're in the hollow space, and it doesn't collapse that hollow space. Well, I mean, you, you can actually is... have a hollow space inside the Earth. Well. <laughs> to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Okay, hang on, folks. Let me just tell everybody, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're taking a different look into our prehistory and how the planets were formed with Neil Adams. Well, it's interesting that there are people who believe that there's a hollow Earth and that there's sort of... I was going to ask you about that because of what you were telling us, yes. Flakes. Sorry, folks, they're flakes. I know I'm going to get letters, but, you know, it's silly. But because if there was a hollow place inside of the Earth, and there is, then you couldn't go there. (laughs) It's really bad. What I'm saying is this, is that in the inner core of the Earth, it's plasma, which is basically atoms of various things disassociated from one another so that the electrons and the, and the nuclei are separated and they don't come together real easy because of the tremendous temperature and action that's electromagnetic energy that's going on. All geology says that that outer core of the Earth is molten iron, molten iron. Now, they say that really as a deduction. They say that because iron is the best thing that it could possibly be. It could be water, but nobody believes that. And the reason that it would have to be molten iron rather than solid iron, which is a little odd because it's been 4.5 billion years since the Earth cooled, so you kind of wonder why it's molten. The reason they say that is because it has to have certain qualities. One of those qualities is it must must carry P waves, what are called P waves. It can't carry seismic waves, it has to carry P waves, and that would be a liquid or a plasma. It must carry the electromagnetic field of the Earth, and that would have to be a liquid, it could not be a solid, or it could be a plasma or or a dense gas. So geology says, well, if we remember 150 years ago when all those guys told us that the Earth, you know, was collected all this and it was molten then and it differentiated, then that means that the center of the Earth is iron. And since it carries the electromagnetic field of the Earth, it must be molten iron. Therefore, their conclusion is that it's molten iron. I say, no, the Earth grew. It did not differentiate. It was never molten. That's why you can find iron in a local mountain, and you don't have to go to the center of the Earth. It was never molten, and what's at the core of the Earth is an empty space, empty of solids that's filled with plasma, and that plasma and the electromagnetic field that's there is producing matter. So we can't go to the center of the earth and do weird things there. The last time I tried to go, the taxi melted. (laughs) So you're saying the plasma is generating the electromagnetic field? No, the electromagnetic field is creating matter with the plasma. Because the plasma, remember, is the raw material to make matter. 
the other thing is that we you can't go, go directly into this theory because what you're talking about is a theory that's taken me 35 years to develop. So you can't just like say, well, because of this, that this is the case. No, you have to actually examine the theory. Remember I told you about electrons and positrons? If you fire a photon into some empty space, you get an electron and a positron. Well, inside of the Earth and inside of the sun and inside of all these planets and moons, there's a tremendous amount of energy. And that energy is constantly pounding this kind of stuff that we don't know about. We'll call it prime matter. Or if you want to, you can call it pre-matter. Or if you want to, you can call it dark matter. It hits these things and pops these two particles apart, pops an electron and a positron from each other. Now, of course, that positron will find an electron and destroy it unless there's an electromagnetic field nearby. And that positron might ride that electromagnetic field and not kill an electron. And if it does that, something may happen to it, and it may grow it up into a proton. What would happen to it? Well, it has to be coated in some buffering material, like, oh, prime matter particles. And if it was, it could become a proton. And if it became a proton, it would join an electron and become hydrogen. And with hydrogen, gentlemen, you can make a universe. Or hmm. I'm wrong. <laughs> then, okay, let me throw in another uh, elemental ingredient to this stew. What effect would neutrinos have on this, given that we have this huge number of neutrinos that pass all the way through the planet? I think a neutrino is a, a half of a prime matter particle that does not have the energy. In other words, what you do is you take a prime matter particle, and the prime matter particle seems to be two electromagnetic fields enwrapped in one another. The negative field is on the outside, the positive field is on the inside. So think of it as like a, I don't know, cotton seed and a cotton ball. So you have this electromagnetic, this, this negative field on the outside, you have this positive field on the inside. And what happens is you add energy to it and pop that center out, and you have an electron and a positron. Well, I think that on the sun, you can pop those things apart without necessarily adding energy to them. And so what you get are two uh, broken apart fields. You get a negative and a positive field. And that's what neutrinos are. I think that's what they are. I don't know. Obviously, Neil, I mean, you're creating these things with an eye towards mainstream physics, I hope. I'm what creating new physics. <laughs> well, but you're not going to like me. Well, a new physics can't emanate from a vacuum, boom, boom, I'll be here all week. Um, but physics, our knowledge of physics basically builds on prior knowledge, and there are breakthroughs, and those breakthroughs have happened throughout the history of the field. Or, conversely, the breakthroughs get in the way. One of the things that we know about physics is that for a while, for a great period of time, we were moving toward a simplicity. In the end, when we discovered that everything was made out of three things, electrons, protons, and neutrons, right. that made physics way simpler than it used to be because we used right. to think it was made out of all kinds of elements and each thing was a different element. We discovered that, that well, everything is made out of electrons, protons, and neutrons. And that seemed to be, a, to me, at least, a good direction. I thought that clearly is a good direction because you're making things simpler and easier to understand. But then they discovered quarks and all kinds of other stuff, and now we've got like 14 different particles, and now it's become very complicated. Well, it's even become an issue of context. Quantum mechanics throws all of this into a, a huge cosmic blender and, and well, really complicates this because we realize that perhaps context in which we're discussing this is not complete. It's missing... Yeah. It's missing dimensions. I think, I think, though, that it is. And I think that this is horse feathers. <laughs> I think that the, the idea should have been to ride it down to its basic nub and find out exactly what everything is made out of. Because it doesn't make any sense that if you're going to create a universe that you're going to make it complicated. It just 
it's a little too hard for me to believe that you can expect a universe that, that basically has nothing to offer to give you a half a dozen miracles. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, Neil, I mean, that, that's a little presumptuous. I, I just, well, I mean, I, I have to, know. I have to. Is it? Well, is it? Think about it. I mean, it's not exactly what you call an intelligent universe. It's just sort of there, you know? It doesn't really? like, I, it, doesn't, well, it doesn't sit around and kind of make, oh, we're going to make something tonight. We're going to make quarks, and then we'll go, and then tomorrow we'll make something. I don't really think that the universe works that way. I think the universe is sort of like very basic and very simple, and if something happens, some wonderful thing happens, it gives you a shot, okay? You get a shot. You get a shot at making matter. That's all you get. You don't get any more. Now, you've got to take that shot, and you've got to figure out a way to make that turn into you and me. And that is what you call evolution. Evolution to me in nature is greater than the evolution of animals. Evolution to me is how we get a universe. Something happened, some little thing, probably, I don't know, the rubbing of two universes together or the stretching, maybe a part of the universe spun and it pulled apart a little bit and made all these little bubbles. And that's all you get. There's no guy sitting in the back room making particles. There's no other dimensions feeding particles into our dimension. It just seems to me that that's expecting way too oh, much. Oh, but we've seen indications that there's a good possibility. Indeed, there are these rifts that are spewing matter into our universe that we can't source. Um, Actually, no. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Sterling and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Neil Adams, artist and student of science, is with us. We, we're exploring a new theory with regard to planetary origins, and now we're talking about what the other dimensions might be sending here. You disputed with what David said. Well, I didn't necessarily dispute it. I just questioned what that stuff is that it's spewing. <laughs> My suspicion is that it's electrons and positrons. If anybody has any information beyond that, I'd love to hear it. In fact, that's what black holes are that are the center of our galaxy are spewing out of the hub of those black holes. In one direction, they're firing electrons. In the other direction, they're firing positrons. So what is really going on there? Seems to me that black hole is making matter. 
because I, I can easily visualize a spur of that tremendous column of positrons in one direction and going in the other direction and then going up and around and coming back into the galaxy at the so at the uh, planetary or the solar plane and bringing the positrons now developed into protons, the electrons, bringing them and joining them and making more hydrogen to feed all the new suns that need to be made. Now, if that's what's happening, what we're saying here is that the black hole is feeding itself and creating itself. It's creating its own solar systems. It's creating its own stars. That it's part of a process that's ongoing, and it's an ongoing process of making matter. And if what, I, what I'm saying is true, then there is no Big Bang. The universe grew. And that thing that we call the Big Bang is simply growth. Looks the same. It's just a growing universe. Does, I could be well, wrong. Well, I think it's good. It's it's probably realistic to say we all reserve the right to be wrong at all times. If we're going <laughs> to have a rational discussion about this, that's really the only way to go. Exactly. But what's against it? See, I've also been searching for the last ten years for a way to shoot this theory down, and I really, I've really tried really hard, but I haven't found anything. I can't shoot the the sucker down. But you're welcome to give it a shot if you'd like to. I think it's a really interesting conversation, Neil, and. You know, so my question to you is when you run this by maverick physicists, let's say we have, <laughs> well, 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 no, we, we know that there are, ma listen, any physicist who gets into the realm of string theory is by definition a maverick. Uh, I think they're, they're a maverick when they're within their own theory. <laughs> well, listen, given the, the incredible complexity of what, reality appears to be and given that you know if I, and gene will tell you i'm the biggest cynic in in the world here and i'm always demanding that people you know sort of justify their stance but i have to also recognize that the work that physicists do i mean to get into trying to to grok the universe at that level you've got to be daring by definition i mean conservative physicists well maybe the ones that are protecting their tenures at universities and so forth but even if you have tenure at a university that sort of is supposed to mean that you can get out there and explore crazy stuff and it's not going to have some incredibly detrimental effect on your career any Anybody, Neil, who's looking into particle physics, I mean, you know, the, the classical physicists look at them and go, oh, God, those guys are smoking something funky. I'll tell you a little Shoot. story. Shoot. What's his name? Uh, Samuel Warren Carey, a professor of geology at the uh, Sydney University. Very well known, very well recognized, but of course he came up with this theory about expanding Earth, which nobody liked. And uh, he was, uh, you know, at, at this time, it was being considered. He was invited by the Royal Academy of Geologists to become a member and to come and speak in London. Now, of course, you're an Australian. They invite you to London. That's like inviting an inmate to, you know, speak at the uh, House <laughs> of Lords. Oh, yeah. So, of course, uh, it's a big deal for him. Now he's uh, very prominent. He's making headlines around the world. And, you know, they want to have him come to the academy to speak. And so he gets up and he's about to make his presentation to these reasonably liberal, uh, intelligent people. And he says like two words. And some guy in the middle of the audience stands up and screams out, bull. You know, you know the last part of that word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're talking about a society of geologists. And this jerk gets up and yells out, 
like as if you know somehow his wall of word is going to stop this man from speaking i mean it's phenomenal to me to even think of such a thing of course if i was there I would have punched him punched his lights out but, Whoa, but it's one of those like magical moments where you you have one of your defining moments where you go you know as much as i may love my fellow man and i do love my fellow man as much as i would fight for my brother on the street and i would stand in front of him might even take a bullet for some folks there's a point where i have to say you know we are dumb race of human of creatures <laughs> we are dumb as trees and we believe stuff and we fight for things that we know are baloney and we go for the status quo and we fight for our status and we fight for you know tenure and we fight for our sure. jobs and you know we have a right to do that and we do it and people do it all over the place the only reason to be perfectly honest that i got involved in this and i've been able to hold the course is first of all for the for those 35 years that i was doing it i kept my mouth shut beyond that i have no tenure anywhere I have no job anywhere, and the people who I talk to don't want to talk science anyway. I could clear a room in two minutes by talking about this theory, mm. because nobody's interested in doing it. Got a whole bunch of your audience like that little rap there. Okay. <laughs> okay well, well, actually, well, well, Neil, actually, our audience is the kind that does ask the hard questions. We're not coast to coast. We have listeners that actually do understand some of what we're talking about, and that's why we um, we ask questions on the show. I mean, and Gene will tell you. I fully support the notion that the talking monkeys that we are, we don't really mu understand much of anything about the nature of this universe. I, I'm 100% on the same page with you with that, but our listeners do indeed ask the questions, and, and they do their, their research. Well, this is one way that uh, the Paracast is definitely very different than the other audiences that you're, you're likely to speak to. Well, That's I'm a good ready thing. for any questions. Well, we've been giving you quite a few right here. No, and you've been doing a good job with them, actually. Sure. Uh, you know. and, and let's look at this because we have a couple of minutes left. And that is, Neil, where do you go from here? Because right now you're just you and maybe some few people are talking about this theory. It's not generally accepted, and certainly that doesn't mean anything because there are times in the past when things aren't generally accepted and suddenly they become the prevailing wisdom. So. That's that's pretty much history, isn't it? Yes. So. Um, you know, if somebody left a roadmap, I'd be following it. I don't honestly yeah. know what the next step is. I mean, I've, I'm preparing my book, of course, and I'm doing a video, and you may have seen some of the videos, mm -hmm. and people have heard about it, and I get into verbal fisticuffs with uh, some geologists here and there. I don't know the pathway. You know, I, I prepare and I present what I can. I try to take a realistic view about it, and I do, you know, but to be perfectly honest, if people aren't willing to study all the sciences, it's very, very hard to even look at this even with just a, a realistic point of view, because there's hardly anybody. Like if I say to you, here's a dinosaur that weighs four to five times what an elephant weighs. Now, I would like to bring in my engineering brothers and say, okay, guys, let's just talk about if this is possible. And of course, every one of them will say, of course it's not possible, you can't do that. You're saying that the bones are made out of the same material that elephant bones are made out of. You can't build a building that's 10 stories tall without steel because it can't support its weight. So such a thing couldn't happen. There's two uh, paleontologists that have appeared on Discovery who argue whether or not the Tyrannosaurus rex was a predator or a scavenger, okay? Predator or a scavenger. The guy who says he's a, he's a scavenger says that he weighs 10 tons the size of an elephant, he couldn't possibly be a predator. He couldn't possibly run. He'd break his legs as soon as he took one step. Now, 
I study anatomy. I study a lot of stuff, but I study anatomy. Let me tell you, that was a predator. That guy could run 60 to 70 miles an hour. And not just in the movie Jurassic Park. Not just in the movie Jurassic Park. He's built to run, okay? That's how the anatomy works. Well, the answer to the question is not, was he a predator or a scavenger? The answer to the question was, how heavy was the gravity when he existed? That's the question. Now, you know, the problem is, a physicist... And a, or a geologist will not take that as serious evidence because they study physics and geology. I study them all. I would have to say to you, excuse me, that's just as valid as anything else that you guys study in your specialties. There's well, no difference. It's exactly the same thing. Well, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the notion of the importance of the generalist. Uh, huh. Something that in our society has been, for the most part, forgotten. And, and in I'm a society where yeah, no, that's we have the symptom of over-specialization that's really kind of killed a lot of innovation because people don't have the big picture. And you would call it tunnel vision, and that might be some of the biggest problems yeah. in a lot of the things that we're trying to confront of our lives. Yep. We want to thank Neil Adams for joining us this week on the Paracast, for opening our eyes into a new theory, and what can I say? It's a, it's a pleasure. You can check the videos out on uh, YouTube if you don't come to my site, and um, if you want to get into the debate discussion and uh, it's going to be lively well you know what i'm even going to go one step further neil we have to have you back because uh it's generated more questions for me so absolutely have and back. bring some guys that uh, you know assume that they know a whole lot and we'll have a really lively discussion beyond <laughs> what you guys present to me i'll be delighted Excellent. thanks for joining That'd us be great thank okay. you so much it's a neil. pleasure the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney is a production of making the impossible incorporated Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.